You're listening to Acts of Impact, the show where we interview organizations and individuals to learn about the positive contributions they are making around us. On today's show, we interview with Fistula Foundation about their work treating obstetric fistula, a life-altering condition that can occur during childbirth. We'll talk about what this condition is, the barriers to treatment for affected women, and the ways Fistula Foundation maximizes donations to provide the life-changing surgeries that are needed to help. Our guest today repairs our understanding of a condition that is rarely discussed. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to Acts of Impact. I'm your host, Nicholas Hill, and we're here with today's guest, Kate Grant. Kate is CEO for Fistula Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the treatment of obstetric fistula, funding more repair surgeries than any other organization, public or private. Kate, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here with you, Nicholas. Absolutely. It's so great to have you here. And Kate, I always like to start by better understanding the problem that Fistula Foundation is solving. You are working to repair a condition in women known as obstetric fistula. Can you start by telling us a little bit about what this condition is and and how it's caused? Sure. Obstetric fistula is a childbirth injury. It actually used to be prevalent in places like the United States, In fact, where the current Waldorf Astoria Hotel sits in New York, there was a fistula hospital into the 1890s. It finally closed down. So this condition, unfortunately, still, though, affects women in developing countries, roughly a million of them. It's caused by unrelieved obstructed labor. So if you're a woman in in the U.S. or in a other industrialized country and your labor is obstructed, you'll get a C-section and usually that ends with both a healthy baby and a healthy mom. But if you're delivering a baby in a remote area of a developing country where you can't get to a hospital and your labor is obstructed, the labor can go on for days. And that's what, and that's when official is created. Basically that obstructed labor cuts off blood supply and uh, a woman will wake often after days of um, labor to a stillborn baby, but also to incontinence. So obstetric fistula creates incontinence. And what we do is we fund surgeries in countries in Africa and Asia at uh, more than 50 hospitals that treat this injury. So that's what we do. And I hope that's clear. Did that, did that make sense to you, Nicholas? Yeah, absolutely. And I want to double click on a few things that you mentioned there. The first thing that you mentioned was that in a country like the U.S., you might have a mom who experiences this. She gets a C-section, healthy baby, healthy mom. What are some of the obstacles to that in the areas in which you're providing these corrective surgeries? Uh, why, Why is it that we don't really hear about it as much here as opposed to there? Yeah. Well, here, here what we have, and, and we have an imperfect healthcare system, certainly, but here, if you show up at a hospital and you're in labor, and you could even be undocumented in this country, and you show up in labor and need a C-section, you will get one. And generally, again, that will save the life of the baby and the mom. If you're in a country that has far fewer doctors and hospitals, and you're also in a remote area, 
you won't be able to easily get to that hospital because it's miles down a dirt road. <laughs> and if you get to that hospital, there may or may not even be a doctor there to treat you. Um, often in the countries we work, uh, there may be one or two doctors per five to 10,000 people, again, depending on the country. In the US, we have roughly one doctor for every four to 500 people. So you have a lot fewer doctors in many developing countries that can even um, treat, you know, you, you'll show up at a, at a hospital, there may or may not even be a doctor available there for you when you when you need it. And labor obviously is a time sensitive event. So the, the sort of the delta here, the difference between what happens in this country or another industrialized country and a developing country is the availability of a timely C-section. That's, that's really the difference. And lack of, uh, lack of availability of doctors, lack of timely ability to get to a facility where there is a doctor, uh, those are the differences, the primary differences. And so in the United States, what happened over a hundred years ago, the uh, medical profession um, advanced in this country. We have more doctors. We had um, advances in, in deliveries with more C-sections and forceps deliveries, more hospital-based deliveries, fewer home deliveries. All of those contributed to fistula largely being eradicated in the U.S., Something that I saw on your website and another area that I wanted to double click on, you had mentioned that this can cause incontinence, it can cause pain, it can cause uh, prolonged labor. What about afterward, right? After, after this occurs, is this something that has kind of long-term effects on the women that experience this during labor? Well, definitely, because, and I'm sorry if I wasn't clear about this, um, the the incontinence that that happens happens after the labor is done. I mean, it's it's an injury that's created because of the obstructed labor not being dealt with in a timely manner. But what the woman wakes up with is incontinence, and without surgery, she'll have that the rest of her life. It's hard to talk about this without getting specific, so I will just for a second anatomically. Basically. Um, fistula is a general uh, medical term for a hole between an internal organ and the outside world that shouldn't exist. So we're talking about obstetric fistula here. So this is holes in the bladder and the vagina and sometimes the rectum too, which produce urinary and it's sometimes fecal incontinence. So those holes were produced because uh, the tissue didn't get enough oxygenated blood. There's, there's the baby's head pressing on the pelvis. It cuts off blood supply. And that lack of oxygenated blood is what creates sort of holes. Those holes are actually dead tissue. So that's that's pretty brutal. So a young woman wakes up often on a first delivery. Her baby's died in childbirth and she wakes up and she doesn't know what's going on, but she's wet in essence. And a lot of times she'll be sent home, even if she's at a hospital. But if she's delivered at home, she still doesn't know exactly what's going on. But that injury won't fix itself. She really needs, she needs surgery. That's the only cure. And that's what we do. That's what we're in business to do. But to your question about what the impact is, it's not so much that she's in pain. Labor is an exhausting process, uh, certainly. Um, but the, I would say the pain is, is I would say more psychological, which happens over time where the incontinence, as you, you imagine a place where you don't have hot running water, you don't have, because of poverty, multiple changes of clothes. There's no depend pads. The way you would be managing incontinence in a developed country, you don't have those tools. And so what happens is she becomes soiled. She can't clean herself very easily. And then that leads to, too often, social ostracism, 
where people don't want to be around her. Um, one of the women I talked to on a recent trip to Kenya said she'd rather be blind because people would actually sit with blind people, but they won't sit with incontinent people like in the village or in her hut. So it's a very ostracizing condition on top of it being physically very challenging. How often does this occur during childbirth where it leaves a woman in this condition? You know, we don't have the strongest data set. I say this, I'm the daughter of, <laughs> of a scientist and the, the data on fistula is, is, um, is not the most robust because of where the injury happens, which is remote parts of a developing country and because it's a, it's a stigmatized condition. That said, a uh, fairly robust meta-analysis, which is basically an analysis that analyzes a bunch of small, <laughs> small studies, estimates that about one in um, 500 births in a developing country will produce um, a fistula. And that leads to some big numbers. And as you said at, at the beginning, we're doing more, the Fistula Foundation, which is a private charity, uh, than even the U.S. government and the U.N. I'd love to say there's a lot of competition <laughs> to treat these women, but there's there's not, unfortunately. They they too often, because the, the poverty is what is one of the, the drivers of the condition, lack of avail availability of doctors and ability to get a, a C-section when you need it. These women are not generally as politically empowered as one would like. And I don't care whether you're in Dubai or Dallas, nobody wants to talk about incontinent women for very long. So it's, it's a tough issue to get political traction on within these countries to get the resources that are needed to treat them. I understand. And I think that that helps lead me to where I want to go next, which is how Fistula Foundation helps these women. And my understanding is that uh, you mentioned earlier, surgery is the only cure for this condition and Fistula Foundation is providing these surgeries and treatments. Is that right? That's right. Surgery is the only cure. And one of the things we are laser focused on is surgery. There are many elements of women's reproductive health care in developing countries that don't have the resources they need, whether that's good prenatal care, whether it's um, provision of contraception so people can plan and space their children, um, midwifery uh, training for helping to have safer births. There's many things that are have value um, for women, but all those things I mentioned, we don't do. <laughs> we focus uh, with kind of a laser focus and blinders on on surgeries, and that's what we track. Um, we track it and we focus on it. Um, we we have built hospitals, we have trained surgeons um, to help enable surgery, but that's all with a with a focus on on just treating those women. So why do we not do those other things? Well, those other things have value, but the return on investment, the ROI for those interventions is harder to track. With surgery, if you can take a woman who's incontinent and you can send her in an OR with a trained surgeon, hour, hour and a half later, she comes out the other end on a road to healing and health with one intervention. Um, that's an amazing contribution. And so we like the IRI in that, and we focus deliberately on that. And over time, we've grown, as you said at the outset, to do more than even the U.S. government or the U.N. And what we do is we we fund individual hospitals, individual doctors. Um, I say mostly I'm a talent scout, but um, but that's what we do, and that's where our money goes. We raise it, and we, we get it to those hospitals. I, I sometimes say that we're a bridge, Fistula Foundation, and on one side of that bridge are some caring, empathetic people 
who've never met a fistula patient, but they hear about this. How could this happen in a modern world that some poor woman is in a hut by herself suffering the rest of her life because she was trying to give birth to a child? And with one surgery, I can help fix this. I'm in. So that's one side of the bridge. The other side is, again, those doctors and hospitals. And so Fistula Foundation is basically just the bridge between those. Um, obviously, we're trying to in increase the size of the community on one side of that bridge that funds the other side of the surgery, at the same time growing the community of surgeons and hospitals on the other side of that bridge. That's, that's what we do. And I want to talk a little bit about the surgeons and the hospitals side of that bridge. How is it that you're able to affect change in, in that area? Is it through training uh, in, in how to perform these surgeries? Is it the technology that they need um, in the medical rooms? How is it that you equip these kind of the healthcare side of the equation? Well, we have right now sort of a two-pronged strategy and the majority of our resources go into the first sort of prong and that's to fund doctors that have already received training and hospitals where they have a doctor that's already received training or they have somebody that wants to receive training. And we have a partnership with FIGA, which is the French acronym for the International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetrics to do fistula surgeon training. But the majority of our money goes into those individual hospitals because a woman shows up at a facility or, or maybe is found by an outreach worker and, and needs surgery. She's more often than not indigent. And so when it's the difference between her being cured and not, um, in addition to obviously having a trained doctor, it's the money to pay for the surgery, to pay for the nurse's time, to pay for the meals while she's recuperating for two weeks, to pay for the operating room time. You know, a doctor's time and a hospital bed are precious resources. And in developing countries, people have to get paid just like they do here. So what we provide is the money to do that. And again, when necessary, we help with the with the training. The second sort of prong in our strategy is to really try to eradicate fistula working at a country-wide level. We're in Kenya and Zambia moving um, this year into Democratic Republic of Congo. And there the ambition is greater than working with individual hospitals. It's really, as I said, to work at a, at a countrywide level to try to eradicate it by setting up a network of hospitals with training, treatment, and outreach all married together. You had mentioned earlier that poverty is kind of a, a primary cause of this. What are some of the things that are leading to maybe a higher probability of this condition occurring that, that you're working to address? Well, I would say there's, there's two things that we say sort of undergird fistula. One is poverty and the other is gender discrimination, that women um, get fewer resources, whether that's food or years of education. Almost any developing country you can point to you have greater levels of what's called stunting, which is um, undernutrition in children. And those, those rates of stunting are usually greater in girl children than boys, um, that there's a male preference. So the boys from the beginning get more, they, they get more years of schooling generally. Um, and then political power also aligned with other resources. So there it's, it's poverty and the fact that poverty is worse for women and girls often because of this gender bias. So those are the two deep roots. And honestly, we don't work specifically on those roots. We work more sort of downstream on the symptoms of those problems because those are big, those are, those are in, not exactly intractable problems, but they're, they're huge problems. So we really are focused on the curative side of things. I mean, in fact, prevention, prevention you know, is, is something that, that is obviously very compelling. If you could get women the C-sections they'd need, 
you'd have obviously fewer fistulas, many fewer fistulas, maybe you'd eradicate it like we have in this country. You'd also have more healthy babies. I mean, that's like, you know, that's, that's, that would be an amazing thing. But as I said at the beginning, when in the U.S. we have maybe 10 times the number of doctors per capita that you do in a place, uh, a sub-Saharan African country, the order of magnitude of that need is so vast. It's it's beyond us. I, I said it's even beyond like the Gates Foundation or the U.S. government. It's 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 a it's a heartbreaking sort of need, and it's 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 huge. And it the the thing is, it also if you, you really back up on it, it's fistula is one of many issues that don't get the energy and attention needed just because of having lack of availability of of trained uh, doctors. Let's talk a little bit about the successes that Fistula Foundation has seen, because you mentioned that you are laser focused on this one area and specifically this treatment, the surgeries that are being provided. And something that strikes me about your organization is the incredible efficiency of how you use the funds that are at your disposal towards that end. Um, I've been reading uh, that since 2009, your organization was able to turn a five-fold increase in revenue into a 15-fold increase in surgeries provided. And I would love to hear uh, from you, Kate, just what are some of the areas that you attribute to that efficiency? What, what are some of the ways that, that you think about fund management and, and why you've been so effective? A couple of things, I guess. Um... One is I sort of cut my teeth, if you will, um, in the private sector. My undergrad degree is in business, and I worked on Madison Avenue for eleven years. And it, Madison Avenue, because it's you know closest to kind of the marketing and the products, it's a pretty um, ruthlessly competitive, um, or at least you're near that part of the uh, part of the private sector that that really cares about moving product sales. Basically, I would say that that experience informed in some ways the way I run the organization, but our bottom line isn't money, it's number of surgeries. Organizing around what we deliver on and that's what we deliver on has a way of just um, sort of disciplining the whole organization around a measurable outcome. You know, FOMO, fear of missing out. For us, it's focus on measurable outcome and that's what we do. We focus on a measurable outcome. And I would say, if you want to look at the one thing that's helped us you know, drive those results. It's the whole organization is in the boat rowing toward that same thing in different ways and contributing in different ways, but a very clear sense of what we're doing. That also mission creep is a term you'll hear in the in the nonprofit charitable space. This notion that, you know, you're working on one thing and something else is very compelling. It's not sort of laziness, it's compassion, I think, in a way that has organizations say, oh, we're doing this, but this other thing's so interesting and compelling, we're going to also do that. And we've been, as I said at the outset, very focused on not having that happen, not moving because we are compelled into something new, but to really just get even better at this one thing. So that's helped as far as the, the the magnitude of growth. I think there's an efficiency. We've added some really spectacular people to the team. We have a very lean team. I would say one of the things that we haven't done is we haven't staffed up. We're not like a symphony orchestra, we're like a jazz combo. And I try to hire really talented people who can think on their own and connect dots. So those are force multipliers people because they, they don't look to me specifically to tell them how to grow. Um, that also keeps our costs lower because we don't have as many people. 
The other counterintuitive thing is majority of the people on our team have not had significant nonprofit experience. What they do have is a lot of experience and, a, and I think a majority now have graduate degrees. So we've got some really sharp people that come not with a bias, a, a nonprofit sort of sector, maybe risk averse bias, but some smart people who help us get better at what we do. And I'm ruthlessly cheap. That's the other thing. When I look at the success that your team has had, you know, receiving some of the highest ratings from Charity Navigator, I know that you've received 15 consecutive four-star ratings from them. I was able to find you on great nonprofits where you've received perfect five-star ratings again and again. And I've just would encourage our listeners to uh, go to your website to see just more kind of celebrations of your work. Can, can I ask when it comes to the numbers, you know, how many of these surgeries have, have you performed? What are some of the, the successes you've seen numbers wise uh, from, from your work? Well, in, since 2009, the reason I mentioned 2009 was um, we were founded in the year 2000, but up until 2009, we were focused on really supporting one hospital in Ethiopia. It was the pioneering fistula hospital. So if you're gonna support one hospital, that was the way to go. But in 2009, we dramatically changed our mission to sort of go global, which you know seemed like <laughs> the tail on the dog looking to be a new dog and now we're the big dog. But I mean, it was that was a big change. But so what I could do is, is give you a number from uh, 2009. And since then we've done more than 65,000 surgeries. That's, and, and if you were to look at a, at a bar graph, that's gone up every year with the one exception being uh, the first year of COVID 2020, where our, you know, hospitals, as you know, around the world basically closed down for much of the second quarter and part of the third quarter. That was the only year we saw a dip. And even by last year, we were up, you know, in 2021, um, you know, beating the number of surgeries we've done in 2019. So, um, and we're on track to do more even this year. Yeah, growing towards that, you have an exact metric that you're going after and seeing the team come on board to go after that 65, over 65,000, that's an incredible number. Yeah, and I think, and I would say we're just getting started, but I, but in some ways, we're not just getting started, but we're certainly nowhere near done. I mean, as I said, we're expanding into another uh, country this year with another countrywide treatment network into into DR Congo and working with our longest term partner actually since 2009 is Dr. Denny McQuaige, who some of your listeners may uh, recognize that name because he won, uh, was a co-winner on the Nobel Peace Prize a couple of years back for his work with uh, rape victims in Congo, an amazing guy. We have some other partners there that are also doing um, terrific work. So we've got a strong base from which to start. As far as the outside, the sort of ratings that you were mentioning, part of the reason that that we have sought those things out and tried to earn those is, again, fistula is not something most people have heard about. And so we have a, in some ways, just a tougher order because nobody has, a, almost nobody has like, a, like compared to say breast cancer, People have members of their own family that have had that issue. Sometimes they've had it personally. I mean, think about another women's health issue in the U.S. Almost nobody's had anybody that they've ever known that's had a fistula. The odds of one of our donors getting on a plane and going to Congo or Bangladesh are limited. So we've had to work, I would say, over time to try to gain external validation because people are giving us money. They're trusting us to get money from one side of that bridge to the other. So any validation we can get that says, you know, we're worthy. We post all of our, um, all of our tax returns all the way back to 2001 
on our website. You can look, you know, you can drill into our tax returns, our annual audits, all of that sort of transparency around the money that people give us um, so that we aren't just um, saying we're going to do good things. We report back on those things. Kate, now that we've had a chance to talk a little bit about obstetric fistula and the condition as well as the help that Fistula Foundation provides and the way that, that you operate efficiently for these treatments, can you tell us a little bit about how someone listening could help? If I'm a listener who's hearing this and saying to myself, I want to get involved, what are some ways that I could help the Fistula Foundation directly or work to support your mission? Well, thanks for asking that. Uh, one simple thing you can do is go to our website and sign up to get emails from us. Uh, we send them out fairly regularly, updates on our work. It's, it's, it's something that's easy and uh, no cost, and it, it offers you an opportunity to engage with us. Also, we're on social media, so you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram, and the like. But as we discussed earlier, uh, Nicholas, we fund surgeries and we do that by raising money. So one of the most important ways people can contribute is by donating. And we have a really popular program called Love a Sister. And that um, is a program that allows people to either give a single gift or give monthly over the course of a year to fund a single surgery, which costs roughly $600. So that's, that's an option. Uh, and that program's growing and we, we love those regular donors. But honestly, um, our average donation is less than $100. And so um, we appreciate any gifts that people are able to give us because collectively those funds pay for those 65,000 surgeries and counting that we were talking about. So we also work very hard to hold on to our donors um, because it's a tough issue. It doesn't get a lot of press. It's a stigmatized condition. So when we do get donors, we try to give people every reason in the world to keep um, contributing because we know there are a million women out there that still need help. So um, we're grateful for the people that come to us. Um, and often we find too that our existing donors are the ones that help us continue to grow that community. Um, word of mouth is one of the ways that, um, that we've grown. So that's another way people can help, which is maybe they don't have funds to contribute or much, but they can easily um, send a link to our website to one of their friends uh, that may have uh, greater resources and care about the health of women. But we're growing and we're grateful for you, Nicholas, because this all helps us get the word out to more people and enables us then to help more women. So thank you so, so much, Nicholas. Appreciate it. Kate, thank you for volunteering your time to talk with us and for everything that Fistula Foundation is doing in transforming the lives of these women. I'm really excited to follow your organization and, and just continue to see the impact that your team is making. So I hope that Fistula Foundation has an incredible 2022 and thanks for coming on. Oh, it's been my pleasure completely. All the best to you. Today's show was directed and produced by me, with music from Alex Grohl. Special thanks to our guests for their time and insight. If you liked today's episode, please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts, and consider leaving a review, as it will help us to spread the word about the show. You can view more information about today's episode online at actsofimpact.com. Thank you for listening.